Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your co-host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, and I'm joined in the virtual studios from South Bend, Indiana, my good friend and compatriot, and uh, the man who gave voice lessons to Luciano Pavarotti, the one and only Ken Hellenius. I've actually been listening to a lot of uh, Italian opera during the COVID. Sure, yeah. sure. So I've been listening to a lot of Pavarotti. Honestly, the uh, I mean, of course, as you might imagine, most of my knowledge of opera comes uh, through Looney Tunes. And so I owe actually a great debt of gratitude to uh, to Bugs Bunny. Because without what, what would I know about opera? Honestly? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so how are things uh, going for you? The Marriage of Figaro is without, oh, that's right. without Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. What 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 would we even know these days, right? <laughs> you know, uh, actually, so during during the uh, kind of COVID in the last year or so, I know we've talked about it before. My bride and I have had various um, entertainment together. You know, we've watched uh, we watched all the Bond films and we watched. Uh, we've started watching MASH from the beginning. Um, and uh, But for me, personally, in my listening, I managed to listen to um, Robert Alter, who's a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, a professor of Semitic languages, among other things. He translated the Old Testament, or the Hebrew scriptures, single-handedly. Uh, uh, so did a single-person translation. And um, because he's an expert in the languages, he brings he's able to bring very interesting nuances of the of the Hebrew that are hard to translate into English. So, you know, Deacon, a lot of what you are able to provide on the show here is you kind of break open some of these Hebrew concepts. I was able to listen to Robert Alter and his translation of the of the Old Testament uh, and kind of dive into that. And that for me has been incredibly rewarding. And then I've also listened to audiobooks of um, Dante's Divine Comedy. And then right now I'm listening to Don Quixote as an audiobook, which I realized other than, you know, the idea of the man of La Mancha, I knew nothing about the story. And so mm. listening to the story and listening to the book in complete uncut uh you know it's what a 27 hour listen but when i'm doing dishes when i'm mowing the lawn when i'm when i'm uh you know folding laundry those are great sorts of ways to to kind of tune out to what i don't need to be paying attention to um although my bride does appreciate when i do pay a little more attention to the washing of dishes so that we don't have to you know clean them a second time but yeah that that's been my <laughs> you know that the, that altar uh series is actually on my list of books to get yeah um yeah because i've heard uh some wonderful things um about his translation so i'm, I'm looking forward to uh to getting that series myself one day yeah you know yeah. one of the things i know is of course i listen to it as an audiobook and um much of the benefit of his translation is in the footnotes. 
the footnotes in the printed version of the of the uh, book. And and so um, I had to go back and actually then buy the physical copy so that I could look up some things that were interesting to me. Um, but the introductions are in the audiobook and they're very excellent. And and uh, I mean, he's writing from the perspective of a of a philologist, you know, a linguist. But at the same time, he's a believer. He himself mm-hmm. is a is a Jewish man uh, and a scholar. And so he's writing um, to uncover the depth of meaning of the scriptures. And that, of course, you know, we've talked about this before on the show. We've had we've had a couple of scriptural scholars with us uh, over the years. But any translation is a series of decisions by the translators, because there's no way to do one to one exact word yeah. translation, because language is a lived experience and even even the the old testament and the new testament that's why we have so many translations of the scriptures and it's profitable to read them side by side and to compare when you're trying to to break them open for for your own self but remember all scripture is an introduction to a living relationship it's a relationship with god with christ and with the church and so um, the words themselves are vitally important, but they're important because they invite us into a loving relationship with the God who created us and who loves us. Yeah, that that's no, that's a wonderful insight, and, and you're exactly right. You know, one one passage I was looking at that um, speaks to what you just said was in Genesis chapter two. It says, "Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife," and, and the word for cleave or some translations say cling to in English, in Hebrew is daubach. Daubach means to pursue. And even in some cases to pursue as to overtake. So for example, in Exodus, when the Israelites are being pursued by the Egyptians, the word daubach is used because pursue. But think about, I was thinking about, wait a minute, why would they use that word in the context of a man clinging, pursuing his wife. You know, think about it. She was the last one that was created, right? And I've always said that the woman is the high point, the pinnacle of God's creative activity. And the word, um, you know, come, again, coming from his side, just like the church is born from the side of Christ, that's something to be pursued, to be desired, to be, you know, and when you pursue it, you want to you want to keep it, you want to hold on to it, you know? I was right. like, wow, I mean, it's, there's, uh, that's pretty, I have to think, of, I'm going to be thinking about that, I'll probably writing something about that uh, some more. But as you, the more you delve into the Hebrew, you're right. There's there's a richness and a depth and a meaning there that's just not captured in English. Yeah. And that's why I'm so excited to read uh, Dr. Alter's work, because I, I think it's going to uncover even some more uh, depth uh, for me. So I'm yeah. really excited about that. You know, it's funny you choose the word cleave to kind of explain there. Cleave is a fascinating word because it is its own opposite as well. You can cleave to something, you cleave to your to your wife, but you can also cleave something apart, right? That's the word we use to split apart. Oh, like cleaver or something like that. Like yeah. a cleave. Exactly. Yeah. So it's yeah. a it's what in, in language we call a contronym because it is its own opposite. You know, mm-hmm. and so when we say we cleave to our wife. We strictly mean the the cling to uh, definition, you know, yeah. <laughs> not not the split apart. Obviously, yeah, it's, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your lesson for language today. This is the language <laughs> corner on Living Stone. So uh, now we'll uh, get to our main portion of tonight's content. <laughs> 
Yeah, we've been having a wonderful conversation about the St. John Paul II's 1995 encyclical letter, Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. And if you've been following along with us, again, you can download the documents free on the Internet. Um, just go to the Vatican website or just type in John Paul II, Gospel of Life, and I'm sure a copy of it will pull up. And we are on paragraph 68. And this particular section, we've been talking about suicide and some practical things, um, euthanasia. And so we're going to look now that this section is called We Must Obey God Rather Than Men, <laughs> which is, I love that. That's from Acts chapter 5, 29. You know, when, when uh, uh, Peter and John are confronted, you know, by the Sanhedrin. And he said, you, we told you to stop talking about that man, Jesus. And he said, we must obey God rather than men. I just love that. In your face. You know, and so and so uh, starting with this paragraph, John Paul II shares some reflections about the civil law and the moral law. Yeah, this entire section uh, really is fascinating for us because it it explains the relationship between, again, the, the moral law and then the civil law that that is passed that we as a community make that we uh, legislate and and uh, that we vote on and things like that. So um, John Paul is providing a bit of a treatise on law that really is informed by St. Thomas Aquinas, particularly throughout this entire section. And he's drawing the distinction between the civil law and the moral law. But in drawing the distinction, he's actually going to lead us to understand that the civil law really needs to reflect the moral law, the natural law that is written into our hearts. And we're going to hear some phrases uh, and, and some concepts in this section that are often cited and that in historically have been cited as reasons why Catholics can't always be the best citizens in a way, because we say there is a law that supersedes the law that we vote on and the laws of democracy and things like that. When those two are in conflict, the moral law takes precedence. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to see John Paul develop that idea in this section. Yeah, and just for a, a quick review, um, we, we're talking about law here. Uh, the church basically teaches there's four types of law when it comes to God. So there's the eternal law, which is what's called God's inner intelligibility. That's, that's the law of God within himself, okay? Um, th that, that's just in the realm of God, like creating neutrinos and you know, uh, supermassive black holes and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and th yeah. so then we have the divine law, which is that part of God's eternal law that has been revealed to us, right? And of course, the fullness of that revelation is Jesus Christ, right? So, right. and then we have, as you just said, Ken, we have the natural moral law, which is the, uh, the law that God has written into our hearts, as Paul says in Romans chapter one and chapter two. And, um, uh, that's the practical application. So um, the moral act is the practical application of the natural moral law, right? The fundamental principles do good and avoid evil. So what's called the positive or the human law, uh, or as we're saying here, civil law, is that part of the natural law um, that is applied to human living and existence, right? So um, so it's taking that part of the natural law and applying it to our lived experiences as human beings in society. And uh, so with that background, we can launch into this. Uh, yeah, this very, very helpful to, to draw those distinctions and, and explain. Thank you.
So paragraph 68 begins this section. Um, and John Paul writes, you know, basically some claim that the laws should respect the choice of the individual because only the individual in that moment can correctly judge the various goods that are at stake in any given kind of conflict. Um, and others will say that complete freedom demands that the law not impose any one particular opinion or moral framework. So this is kind of kind of two um, understandings of of law and especially laws that we that we pass, right? These civil laws. This, however, is not. Um, you know, because of course we live in a pluralistic society. We live in our modern society. There are many different um, approaches and views of what is good and and the ends of human life. And so, without a common understanding of good or of the ends of human life, it's hard to say that this is better than that on the societal level. So. This is kind of the beginning, kind of the just reflecting what the situation on the ground is right now, uh, especially here in our pluralistic societies, as he says. Paragraph 69 then goes on to say, I like to say that he's really kind of subtweeting the Mario Cuomo solution. So um, Mario Cuomo gave a speech at uh, the University of Notre Dame in 1984. He was at the time the uh, governor of New York. And this is where first really publicly the idea, the the concept was advanced in public that I am personally opposed to abortion, but I can't impose my personal view on civil society as a legislator. That's what we, we refer to as the, the Cuomo solution. And John Paul is calling that out uh, and saying that as people of faith and as people who personally are, we are indeed personally opposed each and every one of us as a, as a member of the faithful, we have to have consonance between our personal profession and what we do and how we live in the world. This is your job and mine, I guess more my job than yours, Deacon, because I'm a layman, but the layman, as are all Christians, of course, called to have consonance and to put our faith into practice. And so John Paul here in paragraph 69 um, basically is kind of pointing out that there's a flaw in this Cuomo solution, this, this weasel is it's a really a weaseling of a weaseling out of one's responsibility as a member of the faithful, as one who professes the faith. Oh, that's awesome. And you know, it's very interesting that you're bringing this up now because this is actually an issue right. going on. Could be uh, no more time in the United States right now. Yep. So, um, with cer certain politicians, we know that uh, uh, Archbishop uh, Salvatore Cody alone. Uh, Cordy Lone from San Francisco put out a, a document before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Mm -hmm. And it was a pastoral letter on human dignity, the unborn, commun Holy Communion, and Catholics in public life. And it definitely stirred the pot uh, when it comes to uh, especially giving communion uh, to politicians who profess uh, publicly, openly, profess, promote, and uh, vote for, uh, you know, uh, on issues that are very much uh, in, in uh, um, very much contrary to the teachings of the faith. 
Right. And, and what? Okay. And, and that's something that's just been kind of just ignored for a long time. But finally, it uh, looks like the bishops want to address it. And there's some tension and some controversy there there's, over that. There's a lot of tension. I actually kind of a couple of weeks ago noted it's somewhat crazy that the public bickering that's taking place among the bishops of the United States, in some ways, I wonder, are, you know, are we headed for a major public breakdown of unity? Um, and that's because, you know, there's a question honestly on the table of party loyalty versus loyalty to and and recognizing one's convictions of faith. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of snidely commented, I said, at this rate, the American bishops are going to head into schism before the Germans do with their own synodal way. <laughs> and yeah, that's snippy and, and it's, you know, I'm, it's not always helpful. But at the same time, it's painful to the entire church to see this debate beginning to uh, become a public discussion, except not really discussion because people are talking past one another. The You know, a lot of the bishops who are most vocal are are talking past one another, not listening to one another and sharing fraternal, you know, kind of fraternal correction that needs to be needs to be issued yeah. as well. Um, and we as the faithful, you know, also continue to have to live out our convictions. And what I find fascinating is that the politicians who will say personally opposed, but I can't impose my conscience, they will say that only about certain things like abortion. They will not say that about things like, you know, same-sex marriage, for example. You will see the same politicians who say, well, my conscience tells me I have to do this, even if the laws aren't part of that. So we, we know, you know, we will see politicians who are members of the faithful who will, you know, who are advancing political policies that are in clear violation of the church's moral teaching and the moral law. Um, and yet they will only do that in one direction. They will not do that for the for to respect life, for example. Yeah, you know, and and by that decision that they've made. Um, they've excluded themselves from communion. It's not that the church is withholding communion from them by their very actions and decisions that they've made yep. freely, that they freely made. Um, they're choosing, uh, like I said, like, you know, the beginning of this sex, we were talking about acts, I will obey God rather than men. They're obeying men rather than God. Right. And by that own decision, they exclude themselves from communion. To be in communion means... And this is why our Protestant brothers and sisters, which is tragic, cannot receive communion. Being in communion is not just walking up there and receiving Jesus. When, when, when you do that act of receiving Jesus in the most blessed sacrament of Eucharist, what you're saying is, I am in communion with all these people that are with me. I'm in communion with the one holy Catholic apostolic church and what the church teaches and with all the bishops in communion with the Pope. I mean, that act of communion is more than just a procedure that we do at mass. There's there's such a deeper meaning. It's it's the greatest act of unity we can have with God on earth is to receive him in that blessed sacrament. And if you're not living your life in accord with that teaching mortal sin, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He makes I mean he's a very bold, very clear statement. You you have let a man examine himself right before receiving the Eucharist because if you don't you bring condemnation upon yourself.
So, so I think this is a discussion that definitely needs to be had. And I, I, I mean, I, I think that the bishops that are opposed to that, I think their their main argument is that we don't want to use the Eucharist as a weapon. But it's not. It's not a weapon. The if we're helping these politicians form their consciences, uh, and and they are freely choosing to not have their conscience properly formed, and making decisions that will get them reelected instead of fearing God, fearing again meaning honor, honor, reverence, and respect, then they are excluding themselves right. from receiving communion. Yep. Right? I mean, I can't say this, Kevin. If say. And I would never do this. But say I, I cheat on my wife, right? And right. I don't go to confession. I just say, you know, it was just a one-off thing. You know, I was traveling. I was in a hotel. You know, I was lonely, whatever. You know, my wife will never know. No one will ever know. I'm just going to go to Mass on Sunday. I just violated one of the commandments here. I freely, deliberately, in a state of mortal sin, objectively, in a state of mortal sin. It doesn't matter what I think or how I feel. I have cut myself off <laughs> from the life of God by committing that that act, which I knew that it was wrong, and I freely chose to do it anyway, and it was grave matter. Um, and so I just can't say, well, I'm a good person. You know, I'm still going to give to the church, and I'm still going to work and say, listen to Paul, and I'm still going to do all this stuff. I could just No, you can't do that. And that's what these politicians are doing. You know, so I mean, maybe maybe the bitch should go back and read this section of Evangelium <laughs> Vitae again to remind themselves that they're there as shepherds. Because this is, for me, this is scandalous. Yep. I mean, you have so many people that they're told they can't receive communion, but yet they're just like handing out communion to these politicians like candy. Can't do that. Yeah, yeah, it is scandalous. Is the right word for it, and. You know, and it's not just politicians, it's not just bishops that need to read this section. It's all of us. Yes. Because we need to remind ourselves, because this is part of exactly as you said, citing St. Paul. We too, every time we are at Mass, we too need to reflect and examine our own conscience as we approach the altar to receive the sacred body and blood of Christ. That's not just something for public sinners, that's for all of us. We're all members of the body of Christ, and our sins though we may think we're getting away with it because it's a private sin, is harming the body of Christ. And that's each and every one of us. As St. Paul said, when one, is, when one is hurt, all suffer. You know, And when one is happy, all rejoice together. This is truly part of the body of Christ. So. Yes, Paragraph amen. 70 begins with this, this um, John Paul kind of laying the groundwork here again for something that we've continued to hear about. At the basis of all these tendencies lies the ethical relativism which characterizes much of present-day culture. There are those who consider such relativism an essential condition of democracy, he says, inasmuch as it alone is held to guarantee tolerance, mutual respect between people, and acceptance of the decisions of the majority, whereas moral norms considered to be objective and binding are held to lead to authoritarianism and intolerance. It's quite ironic, that's the end of the quote there, but it's quite ironic that really this idea of ethical relativism has itself become a form of authoritarianism. It's used to shut down and stifle debate and discussion. In certainly, we've seen this a lot over the past year and a half or so in our media as 
only certain opinions are are held to be acceptable. We see it in the idea of deplatforming anyone who doesn't uh, hew to the majority opinion. We see it uh, in deplatforming online. We see we see posts on social media, you know, fact checked by biased fact checkers. Yeah. Uh, we see uh, we see entire individuals, you know, removed from social media platforms because they are alleged to have, you know, incited violence, and yet violence is increased without those people on online. And so these sorts of things, John Paul is really hinting at something that is has only grown as an issue since 1995. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and the deplatforming, the, the, the and um, uh, and so in order to <clears throat> make their point, instead of having that discussion as you talked about, where they're actually listening to each other, um, there, there's a lot of name calling. You're intolerant, you know. And it's right. interesting. The people to me that are the most in uh, that that claim tolerance are the most intolerant people, yeah. because they confuse a t- intolerance with agreement. You know, they, they only tolerate people that agree with them. That's not tolerance. That's agreement. <laughs> and, and so um, I, I think this is this section is important. This ethical relativism. That's what it was called in 95. And now we have because, you know, we have deplatforming. We have, um, uh, you know, this this fact checking and all these other things that are happening. Uh, what What's the other thing? Um, they're changing the names of. Like, like for example, uh, my the the twins graduated from high school. It used to be Madison High School after the president, Madison, but now they changed it to uh, McDaniel High School because it, they've removed all the names of the presidents from the public schools and, and replaced them with, you know, I guess famous people within the history of the Portland public school system or whatever. You know, so you see a lot of that going on as well. We're kind of rewriting rewriting history. Yep. It's uh, it's George Orwell's 1984 in action is what it is. Memory holding, all these sorts of things. But Deacon, believe it or not, as is our custom, we've uh, we've had such a delightful conversation that we've lost track of time. And so <laughs> we're going to pick up this conversation next week uh, as we gather together here in Living Stones. But until then, we invite you to connect with us. Go to Facebook, just type in Living Stones Media, request to join the group. We uh, are an ever-growing little family of, uh, I almost said Living Stoners, but that's clearly not the right term for for the fan club. We're going to have to work on that. We're going to workshop that. But uh, do connect with us. You can, uh, you know, see notes and and, uh, links to uh, the previous episodes of the show. You can also download all of those at materdeiradio.com. But Deacon, until we gather next week, might we have a blessing? Sure, amen. Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.